I think we all want positive affirmation. We want to be liked. We want people to always be on our side or to really feel that people are cheering us on. And the reality is, is if you're looking for validation, you're going to be disappointed every day. You have to validate yourself. You have to feel good about yourself. Welcome to The One Hour Intern. I'm your host, Will Brigger. Today, I sat down with Natalie Morales. You may recognize her from The Today Show, Access Hollywood, The Middleman, and many other hit television shows. Our internship with Natalie begins now. So let's start with a little context to help our uh, viewers understand more about you. You're a journalist and broadcaster for NBC, with your main job being the West Coast anchor of The Today Show, but you've also held other notable roles, such as the co-anchor to The Today Show and Third Hour, also appearing on NBC Nightly News, Dateline, hosting, and many more. This is a really impressive resume. Can you talk about a, a day in your shoes? Yeah, I mean, I think every day is different. That's what I love about being a journalist. You know, there was a time where I, I worked in finance. I'll talk about that in a little bit, you know, out of college and learned a lot in that role, but it wasn't me. I knew I needed something that allowed me to kind of explore the world, really get into people's heads and tell their stories and you know, to really bring to life history that's happening all around us. And I'm an Air Force brat. I grew up all over the world. So I knew my passion was really seeing the world and continuing to see the world and tell stories. And so that's what launched me into a career in journalism uh, eventually. Took a while to get there. I think as most people would tell you, the path to success is not a straight line. It's many divergent careers and pathways and obstacles but my typical day is really right now very atypical because as a journalist, it's very hard to do my job. And the kinds of stories that I do really require travel and interviewing people. So as we have all learned in this new day and age of COVID-19, everything is changing. Every day is different. Some days I'm pretty much sitting on my hands and saying, well, what can I do today to prove my value or prove my worth. And I feel like every day I'm pretty much struggling with reinventing how I do things. So the challenge and obstacles like this are what make us great. And the interesting thing about being a journalist is I think it's innate in, all, in those of us who do this for a living that you have to adjust to situations very quickly and rise to the occasion because it is sink or swim. And right now I'm... I'm I'm treading water, as we say. So everything from, you know, just watching a lot of news and gathering ideas and pitching stories is really a role that I've been doing a lot of now, trying to even book people to do interviews myself and to you know, just elevate what we put on the air to even doing home cooking videos for our digital unit. I've been doing a lot of those. Because the great thing about the Today Show and all that it entails, it's not just what you see on TV, it's what's off air. And now with those of us working from home, there's a large, big push to get people to you know their talent to submit content from home as well. That's outside of just everyday reporting and news. What you're kind of doing right now is trying to find a way to prove that you are important to the industry. And I mean, obviously, a lot of people are kind of asking that question on their own, like, why do I matter in, at the moment? And like, what yeah. can I do to be productive? And what advice would you give to kind of people who are asking the same question as you? That is such a huge question right now. And it's so important. I think the key to 
any successful career is reinvention. Anybody who tells you that they didn't have an obstacle or a boss they didn't like or somebody who disagreed with them or didn't you know, work well with them, who didn't get fired at one point in life, who lost a company, who... There are so many challenges in a overall long-term, what people would say looks like a long-term successful career. But I think the ones who really become the strongest competitors in any industry have definitely experienced lots of challenges, have experienced adversity, have taken on a lot of risk. And, you know, there's the ones who, who make it in general, because I think it strengthens us overall is you have to learn how to compete. It is survival of the fittest. In my industry, it's very much that, you know, if you're not proving, you have to prove yourself every day. You know, what are you doing for me today? What have you done for me in the last two minutes? The expression in the newsroom typically is you're only as good as your last live shot, which tells you a lot about our business. It's not what you did for us 10 years ago or the fantastic job you reported on, you know, 10 years ago. It's what are you doing now? And so it's it's a really tough business in that way. And I think every business is in, in this situation these days, especially with the unemployment numbers where we are and where the future is looking and the economy facing the challenges that we're in right now due to this virus. I think we're in for some very uncertain times long-term. And I imagine for high schoolers and seniors and soon-to-be you know, future graduates, trying to plot that path to success, I would say the key is knowing how to go with the flow, being very smart, always forecasting a little bit ahead. At least picture yourself a year from now, what is it that you feel the world needs and finding a way to meet those needs. How do you personally deal with the pressure of knowing that what you did 10 years ago doesn't matter and it's about what did you do for me two minutes ago? Oh, you are asking some real soul-searching questions. <laughs> it's, that's really great because trust me, I, I struggle with that every day. And I feel like that is the hardest part, I think, for a lot of us who, you know, it's no longer, you know, the day and age of our parents working for a company for 20, 25 years and feeling like their self-worth was based on the job that they did. That's all kind of going by the wayside. Now it really is about like, what are you doing for us right now? And if you're not doing something for us right now, then do we really need you? And, and this is the scary time that we're all in as I think there's going to be more uncertainty like that. And for me personally, there's a lot of soul searching, like, am I doing enough to, you know, make my value, you know, worthwhile? I feel like I have a lot to offer still. I feel like I am not perhaps doing everything I possibly can, though, to, you know, give everything that I can give. I'm trying as hard as I can. But, you know, I do feel like a lot of times, you know, especially where we are right now, you need help. And it's harder to do my job now some thought-provoking questions. There's a lot of sleepless nights lately, <laughs> but I think I think that's for a lot of people. And you know, I think really we're this is not an industry that in itself is is dealing with just this one. I think everybody's dealing with this idea of am I still necessary? And or what do I have to offer and to contribute? And you know, I know that I'm a great writer. I know I'm a great interviewer. I'm a great speaker. I can certainly give great advice. I have great life experience. 
I speak three languages, all of these things I can sit there and put on my resume or on a reel, as we call it in our business. But the reality is memories are very short. And it really is about what happened yesterday or what's happening right now. It's funny that you say that because the questions I ask kind of from this point on are more what happened yesterday that made you today. But I do agree with what you're saying is about the moment. But on that note, let's kind of take a jump back in time, back to your childhood and the start. So you were born in Taiwan to a Brazilian mother and a Puerto Rican father. As you said, you were a military brat and you traveled around the world, mostly growing up in Spain. Can you talk about life traveling and kind of growing up as a traveling kid? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's funny because I think there are some kids that either thrive with, you know, constant change and having to reinvent yourself and go to a different school every two to three years. I think I was one of the fortunate ones that I like that lifestyle. So maybe that's what made me a natural journalist. (laughs) I was ready for change every two to three years. Whereas my older sister, I'm, I'm the middle of three, three girls. And my older sister hated change. And I remember when my father came home and said, kids, I got a new assignment. We're moving to Spain. She was in her freshman year of high school, was captain of her cheerleading team, was on a national honor society, like president of her class. She couldn't have taken it it was like the worst news that could possibly, she thought her life was ruined from then on. It ended up being the best thing that ever happened. And for all of us, it was the best thing that ever happened. But growing up and allowing, you know, that kind of education of seeing the world at such an early age really was, you know, enlightening, thrilling for a kid. I think it's the best education you can get. I wish my kids had that. I mean, it was such an advantage to be able to grow up in a country or I actually became fluent in a language because I lived there. And not just because I have relatives who speak the language and I could speak a little bit back to them, but it was more living in a place, communicating in that language. And I don't think there's any other way to really learn a language fluently unless you go and live someplace. So yeah, living in Spain, I lived in Brazil for three years and my mom being Brazilian, it was a chance to get to you know see her family and know her side of the family and learn Portuguese, which I still speak fluently. And, you know, I, I, I truly believe like the, the best way to raise your kids and you guys being kids still, and I hope you'll agree is you need a push sometimes to get out of your comfort zone. And for me, moving so much was that push to get out of my comfort zone, which I feel has benefited me long term in my life. Because anytime I get too comfortable, there's always something coming around the corner that's going to make it a little bit uncomfortable. So that's, you know, what we're all going to have to learn to grow up and live with. So you mentioned that you dealt really well with change, whereas your sisters kind of had a a bit of a harder time. Do you think that there's anything in particular that made it so that you were capable of dealing with this change? Maybe I'm more capable of dealing with change because, you know, I was more of the middle child and I guess just more the adventurous type, I guess, and curious by nature. You know, I I was always the one who was asking lots of questions and never accepting what was sort of in front of me. It was kind of like, you know, asking inquisitive questions. So again, a natural journalist in that sense. But also I viewed it as exciting, you know, a chance to make new friends. Everywhere I went wasn't scary. It was always, okay, so I have my friends from that place, but now it's time to move to a new place and make even more friends. So I think it's more just for me, it, it was opportunity and an opportunity to collect people and memories along the way. 
You also said that the experience kind of pushed you out of your comfort zone. Do you have any specific stories of kind of the change that helped you get out of the comfort zone? Anything that you feel is really valuable to you? Yes, probably the hardest move that was moving between my junior and senior year in high school from the American School of Madrid in Spain, where I was on track to be valedictorian of my class, was, you know, already probably going to go to an Ivy League school, was all set for that path. And then moving back to my dad was assigned to Dover, Delaware, and he was getting to retire. And so that was extremely challenging going from Madrid, Spain, where I was, you know, top of the class, had my grade point average, everything, my AP classes, to then moving to a school that didn't offer the sports that I played. I played volleyball, soccer, softball. For girls, they didn't have a soccer team. They didn't have a volleyball team. All they really had that I could do was theater. And, you know, I'd kick the ball around with the guys playing soccer every once in a while. So it was really hard. I thought it was going to be an incredible chance to be, you know, going to an all-American high school, Friday Night Lights. So I had this vision of like, oh, life is going to be great. I get to spend my last year in high school in a new school in the States. Like I envisioned USA all the way. And when I got back, the reality was I didn't have a driver's license. I was going to school in the back of the bus, you know, kind of like the senior who was in driver's ed with this freshman and well, I guess not freshmen, but the sophomores and juniors. And I felt like a dork. <laughs> and it was a hard year. It was the hardest year, I think, in terms of making new friends. Normally, I had no problem doing that. But I think when you come from Madrid, Spain, and you're sort of the exotic person, and you know you have all of these things that you that people perceived as you, what you offer, I could just say the girls didn't like me all that much. <laughs> I had more boyfriends than I had girlfriends. And so it was very clicky where I went to school and it was hard to fit in. And so that was challenging. And there's still, it's funny because every once in a while, I'll have an, a reoccurring nightmare where I'm like, all of a sudden I'm moving back to a place in, in my life where I don't know anybody and nobody is accepting me. And I think that stems from that time in my life where I felt like I wasn't being accepted or I wasn't really you know, being valued in the way that I was used to and having to start over. And so I I think it left its mark a little bit. But I also know that that year strengthened me because it also taught me a lot about myself, about how, you know, I've, I've learned to like not care so much about what people think. That was a huge thing to get over, I think, for high school juniors and seniors. It's hard, especially I can imagine in your day and age of social media, we didn't have that when I was growing up thank God. But that idea of having to be accepted everywhere you go, I realized, you know, if I can live with myself, if I respect myself, if I'm proud of what I do, then I don't really have to care about that. But there were challenges. I mean, it's easier said than done. You know, I think, you know, it was a year that I look on as being one that was just kind of a throwaway year. You know, I ended up going to a great school, Rutgers. Also another you know, I guess knock against me was I got into Princeton, but my dad was at the time he was retiring from the Air Force. So he couldn't afford to pay for Princeton. And I say a knock against me only because it was, you know, what I dreamed of what I wanted and everything that I worked so hard for in high school, I then wasn't able to go to Princeton, but I got a scholarship to Rutgers. I ended up, you know, listen, as you'll figure out soon, life isn't where you go to school. It's about 
what you take from those experiences at school, no matter where you go, that make you who you are. I do want to talk about the Princeton versus Rutgers conversation, but I wanted to ask you one question before we got to that. A lot of people kind of, I feel like I can see a lot of people in similar situations as you in high school where they don't fit in or they kind of face sort of social struggles and they feel like they're outside of the norm. Is there, after going through that experience and kind of learning the values from it, is there anything that you would tell those kids and help them get through that experience? You know, I think it's, it is so difficult. I mean, even in life now, I think we all want positive affirmation. We want to be liked. We want people to always be on our side or to really feel that people are cheering us on. And the reality is, is if you're looking for validation, you're going to be disappointed every day. You have to validate yourself. You have to feel good about yourself. I don't know how you get there personally. I think there's a lot of tools. There's a lot of therapy that people go through. So being that person who's been on the outside for all the wrong reasons sometimes, just because I was the new girl or, you know, I think it's important to take away from that experience. No, you're not always going to be that person. Maybe at one point in your life, you're on the outside and then you're the popular girl in another situation. So I think you just have to embrace that time as maybe these people, these people are the ones who just don't get me and look at it as I know I have a lot to offer. Think about all the positives that you bring to the world. And maybe those people are just not your people. And it's time to find your people. And I think that's how I kind of channeled for me what worked. I mean, I ended up that senior year, you know, I was struggling. And I remember trying out for the school play and not getting the lead role, the first play that I tried out. But the drama teacher wrote me the nicest letter and said, your audition was terrific. I just want you to know how much I, I, you know, I would love to cast you in this role, but I just don't think it's the right role for you. But I hope you try out for the next play because I think there will be a role there for you. So here was, you know, his way of sort of letting me down nicely, I thought, but sure enough, I tried out for the next full play and I got the lead in that play. And then it became a really positive experience being part of something bigger finding a different creative outlet and also finding people that I actually got along great with and then who validated me in the way that I needed to be validated. So maybe, you know, I didn't get to play the sports that I played all throughout my high school career, but I found a whole new direction and I found new people and I found a teacher that believed in me. And I think it's finding people who believe in you is ultimately where, you know, we all thrive in life. I'm sitting here with a list of questions and creating questions as you're talking and you just keep answering all the questions that I was about to ask. Oh, well, that's okay. We can keep going with any questions. That's perfect. (laughs) So like you said, you got into Princeton, but you didn't get a scholarship and you couldn't attend because of financial Mm -hmm. issues. And so you went to Rutgers. Can you explain how you dealt with, with not being able to go to Princeton and kind of, you really wanted to go to this school, but that kind of, I don't know, this might be, not be the right way to put it, but your dream there was kind of crushed. How did you kind of yeah. deal with that? It was crushed. It was crushed. And, and still to this day, it's a bone of contention between me and my dad. Let me tell you, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it was my dream school. And I even, after I got accepted, I went and spent, you know, I guess I do it like a perspective weekend. And I went and spent 
whole weekend there and fell in love with it. If I could fall in love with it anymore, I just just felt right. Everything about it was right. I had friends there on campus already. And, you know, to get accepted into a school like Princeton, of course, it's, I mean, we all know that that is a dream school for so many. And, you know, those acceptances, acceptances are like almost one in a couple hundred thousand. <laughs> so, so it was crushing. It was soul crushing to not to get to go. But, you know, I think the situation that I was in at the time, they didn't offer endowments or financial aid packages like they do now. So it was financially not possible. And Rutgers, where my father went to school, came through with a great scholarship offer. And I took it. In the end, what I take away from this experience is, I mean, did I love my college experience? Rutgers was a great school. I have great professors and great you know, memories from the school. I learned a lot about, it's more of a big city campus feel. So perhaps it made me a little more street smart. And the other great thing about Rutgers is it offered my major, which Princeton doesn't have a journalism major. It's more of a liberal arts school. So, and I got great internships as a result of going to Rutgers because our journalism program was tied in with great internship programs. So would I be on the same career path? I don't know. It's the same sort of sliding doors. You know, one door opens, another door closes. What would have happened had I gone one way? Probably might have not met my husband had I not gone to Rutgers. <laughs> so, you know, life works in mysterious ways. And, and I, I think everything works out the way it's supposed to work out for anybody who's dealing with, you know, the idea or the prospect of not going to your dream school. I'm going to tell you now, trust me, if you're working hard and if you're a good student, you're going to be fine. You're going to end up, to be honest, I mean, I probably still would have gone into journalism at, at Princeton. It just, I would have had to have found internships in a different way. I don't know that I would be doing anything different, but I could tell you a lot of the people in my life would be different. At Rutgers, you kind of said the people would be different. At Rutgers, what did you get from people and kind of the mentors that you had there? I think I just, I had mentors who were particularly those in my journalism major, very attuned to the industry and how it was changing and gave me great advice and still stay in touch. You know, it was really, to this day, there's one professor in particular, Steve Miller, who, you know, has always reached out, is always giving advice and is, you know, just a great mentor in that aspect. I remember telling him, when I first graduated Rutgers, I got a job in banking for two years with a chemical bank. And I took the job because I figured it was a great opportunity to learn more about the world, you know, finance and the global economy. And I figured it was sort of not my strength and something that I would need to know anyway. And also there were no paying jobs in journalism coming for me at that time. <laughs> there was, oh, you can get an internship and live at home with your parents. But I knew I wanted to stay in the New York, New Jersey area. So I had to figure out a way to make money. And so there was still um, the tension between you and your dad there. So you couldn't go home. Yeah, I didn't want to go home at that point. I was like, I'm never living at home again. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I never did move back home. <laughs> and I never asked my parents for a penny after, you know, moving from college on nothing. I did it all myself, which I think is really important for kids to do. You know, once you decide on your dream, it's time to fund it yourself. Find a way to make that dream come true. 
But yeah, so anyway, I remember telling, going back to the story with my teacher at the time, telling him and feeling somewhat disappointed in myself. I was like, listen, Professor Miller, I'm sorry, but I'm thinking about going into finance. I got this great job opportunity and apologizing. He And he was ecstatic. He was like, that is fantastic. Like, you know, and, and gave me that first bit of advice, which really is, you know, your career path is not a linear path. It's going to be many, you know, various jobs and opportunities that will come your way. But anything that makes you, if you choose to go into journalism at the time, he told me, you know, down the road, you'll be stronger for it because you've had this whole other career or this whole other opportunity to really grow your skill set. And it turned out being exactly what I needed to do. Wait, you so it was a chemical bank, but was it a JP Morgan bank? Well, chemical bank, it was pre-merger. So chemical bank then merged with JP Morgan Chase. Yeah. So there, how did you kind of know that it wasn't the right place? Well, finance for me was, I mean, it was a very interesting program. It was a management training program and it was a two-year long program. And then after that, you have to decide, you know, they rotate you throughout the various businesses in the bank. So it's an opportunity to really learn different businesses and, you know, to do things that I never thought I would be doing. For example, I mean, using my language background, at one point, I was in the securities lending area of the business and, and the 401k department as well. And they asked me, well, do you think you could go and do 401k meetings in Spanish and maybe Portuguese? And I was like, gee, I don't know. How do I translate 401k? I'm like, okay, maybe I could do this. And I had my dad kind of help walk me through. Like, if I say it this way, because my dad is fluent in Spanish and Portuguese. I'm like, speaking business was not my strength, even in English. So here I'm having to learn it in Spanish and Portuguese, and then going out and giving these meetings in Spanish and Portuguese to convince employees at companies to invest in a 401k package. Now, I don't know that it necessarily worked for them, but I'll tell you, I came out of that always knowing the value of putting a dollar into your 401k plan and making sure that you invest. I learned so much. And, you know, I, I do think a training program like that, it was like a paid for MBA. You know, I got a great degree in real life and practical knowledge that I still to this day, you know, I'm, I'm a kind of a day trader when I can. And I think it's important to really understand the economy that we're in. And it and I, were it not for that, I don't think I would have had that. If I had, had not had had that experience, I don't think I would have invested the way I've invested. I don't think I would be as savvy a consumer as I am. So this wasn't the place for you and you kind of had a hard time here. How did you deal with adapting to this this new field, this new kind of field, this something that was not your place. Well, after after 2 years, you know, it it came to that question of do I want to work in one area of the bank that I got to experience? Is there a job for me here or is this time to go get an actual, you know, MBA, go back to school, maybe get a law degree or pursue my passion, which was journalism? And I chose that. And and it was really it was just a matter of I had saved money and I knew that that job a chemical was my chance to really put money away as best as I could. And, you know, it was not easy because I wasn't making that much. And then saving for then what would be a big step forward, but also a huge step back financially because I took a 50% pay cut to go from 
my career at Chemical Bank. I was making, I guess at the end, like $35,000, $36,000 a year and applying all over the place for jobs in television. I got a marketing assistant job at Court TV. I was making $18,000 a year. So <laughs> that was scraping quarters to do laundry. It was rough, but I knew if I was going to really go for it, the time was now. Like you have to take those early hits. And, you know, when you're not tied down to a home, a mortgage, I didn't have, thank goodness, maybe there was a benefit of not having any college debt. So immediately I could, you know, just everything that I made was mine. I could save and apply towards this dream of mine of being a journalist. Since you had this major pay cut, how did you make it through the day to day and kind of went from the bottom to the top of kind of the journalism business? How did you get there? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's that that also is not a a straight path. I mean, it was rough for the first, I want to say like five or six years where, you know, it took a long time for me to even get back to what I was earning at Chemical Bank. But I loved every day. I loved going to work. I knew I was like, pursuing my dream and my passion. And when you're doing something you love, I don't think you notice the hardships as much. You know, it was tough going. I mean, like I said, I did scrape quarters. When I say I scraped quarters, I was like, for laundry, (laughs) it was hard. And I remember getting down to the last couple of cents in my savings account and thinking, oh my God, how am I going to... I was living paycheck to paycheck, like a lot of people do. And I think I just knew though that if my heart was in the right place, and if I just kept working hard enough at it, that eventually, I would finally get a job that would pay me well. And so it was slow going. But every time I made a move every two to three years, you know, I went from court TV, to then News 12, the Bronx, which was a total startup. And that was an opportunity to actually report and be out in the field and doing it all myself. It was a one-man band. So shooting, writing, you know, producing, editing. That's when I really felt like, oh my gosh, I have made it because I was everything I that was on the air, everything that I put on the air was all stuff that I did myself. And I've never felt more successful. And it's funny because I think success comes to people different points in their lives. I felt successful then and I was making practically no money. But I knew that everything I did was 100% mine and I felt so valued. And so that to me is the meaning of success is when you feel like you've given 110% of everything you've had and then some, and then you can turn around and say, that was a great day at work. I put something on the air that nobody else helped me with. I did it all myself. And then from News 12, I then finally started making it a little bit in the world in terms of bump ups and was hired by Hartford, Connecticut to be a weekend at that time was a weekend anchor and morning reporter. And then within a year, it was the morning anchor and was there for three years. And then during my time in Hartford, Connecticut is when 9-11 happened. And obviously that was 2001. So then that was the last six months before my contract was coming up and the networks started to show interest. And lucky for me that I had done a couple of things for CNBC and MSNBC 
and they liked what they saw. So they said, we'd like to test you on the air this weekend. And I remember going out and anchoring coverage on the weekend, feeling like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm doing this and feeling very overwhelmed. But I made it. I mean, it's sink or swim. And I was swimming and I was floating. And I guess they hired me. They liked what they saw. At that point, I mean, that must have been a kind of a crazy situation. You have this one chance to prove yourself. How did you deal with the pressure on the air there? A lot of pressure, let me tell you. And I'm one of those people that I don't sleep well the night before or something like that. I wake up and I have these nightmare dreams like that I'm not wearing clothes when I'm on the air. (laughs) Crazy. I think we all have had those dreams. (laughs) Or my makeup is a mess or something. So I remember that one weekend in particular, I had spent months preparing for this chance because they were sort of all along saying, well, we need after 9-11 happened, we need weekend anchors. So we would love you to come in and fill in on the weekend. Let's see how it goes. And just studying everything I could get my hands on. It was also the time there was Middle East crisis happening at the same time. Tensions were flaring. So it was all these news events happening at the same time. And it was overwhelming, but exhilarating. But I just did a lot of homework. It was a lot of research, a lot of reading, a lot of watching the news for like a month. And then when I finally got my shot that one weekend... You know, I went to, it was in Secaucus, New Jersey at the time and anchored a weekend and that was it. I guess, you know, I, I, I did well and they liked it. I mean, after that, one could list in numerous numbers of uh, kind of crucial stories that you were there for and there to talk about. But I know that a couple defining moments or one of the major defining moments for you was discussing the rescue of the Chilean miners. Are there any other kind of stories that are important to you and that kind of define your career? And can you talk about those experiences? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, even going back to local markets, when I was in Hartford, as I mentioned, 9-11 happened and being a part of a team of coverage and leading that coverage, obviously Hartford being a feeder market to New York and, you know, knowing the impact in the Connecticut community as well. That was defining and my husband was commuting into the city to go to work. So, you know, I felt like that was a moment that forever will be. And what we're in right now, honestly, I keep saying to my 16-year-old, this is your 9-11. What you all are living with now in the aftermath of what happens in this time is your new normal. What happened with us after 9-11 was our new normal. And just being able to report on all of that, for sure, there's no story in my career that probably had more impact on my life in general, priorities, how you view success, everything, than when you have defining moments like what happened with 9-11, where we are right now with the virus. But you mentioned the Chilean miners. I mean, a lot of school shootings, sadly. I mean... Newtown, Connecticut, I was there the day after the school shooting and and reporting on that as and at the time, my oldest son was a second grader. And so there's been a lot, I think, of defining moments career wise and stories that I've reported on elections, President Obama's inauguration, Ronald Reagan's funeral. I think the stories that stay with me more, though, are the ones of human triumph over tragedy. And that was the Chilean miners and where you have 
people working together, countries working together to pull off what was an extraordinary miracle, really. I also know that there's kind of been some struggles as a woman in media for you. Can you talk about how you overcame those? Yeah, I mean, I think every woman has gone through struggles in media, whether it's, you know, being perceived a certain way, if you're too pretty, you're not smart enough, or if you're, you know, there's, I think every woman will tell you, appear, you've been judged on your appearance more often than not, especially in television. People have talked about you, there have been rumors about you, and, you know, there's there's only so many times you can talk about that or deal with that. I think you just have to have a very thick skin. Any industry, you have to have a thick skin, I think. But for women in front of the camera, it's it's hard. I remember when Katie Couric first took, took over the evening news at CBS and people were criticizing the outfit she wore and if she looked too pretty or was too perky. And people never talk about men in those terms. And I think that's always been a hard knock against women in our business. Even when I was pregnant with, with my, my second child, I remember a male colleague who was my boss at the time who told me I was playing the pregnancy card because I asked for a day off. You know, during my, you know, 10 months of being pregnant, I never asked for a memorial day off. I worked every holiday and I asked for a holiday off and was being judged. So you know, I've been told that I didn't have enough edge. I didn't have enough teeth. I didn't want it enough. I didn't want the interview enough. I didn't want the story enough because I didn't have the news chops or what was perceived as the aggressive behavior to get the story. So I think there's a lot of judgment. And I think hopefully those some of those people have come to realize the errors of their ways. You know, I think there's if there's one thing I pride myself on is my work ethic. And I don't think anybody I know who will ever say that I'm a slacker. <laughs> Are there any other stories, like just at any point in your life that you feel kind of had a defining moments or helped you learn yeah. values or anything like that? Any stories I that you want to share? I think I'm in one right now, to be honest with you. I mean, I think like, you know, after I moved out here to California because I really wanted a change for my family, a change in lifestyle. I knew it would come though with perhaps some professional sacrifice. You know, when you're not in New York and on the desk anymore, I think people forget a little bit about what you have to offer. And it's sort of that out of sight, out of mind. So I feel like being here, while personally it has been the most fulfilling for me, for my family, has been so enriching and is the positive in everything. Professionally, I'm more concerned about where my career path goes. So I am constantly having to reinvent and remind people of why they need me and why I'm worth it and why it's important to value and to continue to value what I contribute. So it's, you know, it's more of a struggle than if I were in New York and still anchoring a show that everybody watches and turns on every day and they see you on the desk and they're like, oh, she's there, she's doing her job, that's great. Whereas here I'm like, I'm here, put me in play. But I will say that, you know, and I think you all will face this in your lifetimes as you grow older and grow up, that you have to sometimes sacrifice, you know, what could be seen as the best opportunity in your life, though, to make it work for everybody else. So while I had already sort of reached the peak, it wasn't working for me personally so much anymore. And I needed a change of scenery. And I knew that my kids 
would thrive. I knew that if I pushed them the same way I was pushed to like adapt and to adjust to new situations to make new friends, I thought it would be the best education for them. And, you know, I think there is that, that saying that when you're too comfortable, then, you know, you're no longer learning or you're no longer challenging yourself. And so my kids were definitely a little too comfortable. So it was time for all. And I was too. I felt change could be good. And here we are. But who knows what comes next? I mean, I'm still reinventing. (laughs) Okay. Well, that is about it. Unless there is anything else you want to say, any advice you want to give, anything you just want to close with? You know, I would just say, you know, like, as you all are going to experience a lot of letdowns in life and a lot of success, you know, just remember to, to always, you know, have a good head on your shoulders when it comes to dealing with adversity and setbacks that that shouldn't define you. It's the things that you do accomplish. That's what defines you. And, you know, always look ahead. Don't look back. I think so often we look back at the what could have been, what should have been, and live in that regret. It's, it's not the way to live. I think the way forward really is to live looking ahead, finding opportunities for yourself, finding ways to enrich your life. And success really is, like I said, it's not about the top dollar earned. It's not about where you go in life. It's more about like, are you happy? Are you waking up every day happy? Do you feel fulfilled? Do you feel like you're valued? Do you feel like you have great friends and great family all around you? Then I feel like if there's one thing we learn from what we're going through right now with the COVID-19 virus, is that that connection that we have to one another is more important and more valuable than anything. So don't forget the important stuff. (laughs) Okay, perfect. Thank you for your time. Awesome. On the next episode of One Hour Intern, I get to learn from Wences Casares. Security person that I hired stopped me and said, Wences, you can't come in. I said, what are you talking about, Jose? It's like, you don't work here anymore. And I thought it was a joke. And then when I saw that he was almost crying, I realized it wasn't a joke and I couldn't believe it. And I went from not having a penny to turning down multi-million dollar offers to acquire the company to not having a penny. again. I was devastated. Thank you for listening to One Hour Intern. I hope that you explore more of our episodes. Follow us at One Hour Intern. The one is spelled using the number one. And if you enjoyed, please rate, follow, and subscribe. The One Hour Intern is produced, hosted, and written by me, Will Brigger. My co-producers are The Blue and Studio Pod. Till next time, thanks.